Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here today on this snow Sunday. A couple of things to say about that. Uh, first of all, um, yesterday while you were um, busy, uh, you know, maybe plowing your uh, driveway or, or your walks, there was, there was a crew of people here um, plowing, plowing our uh, parking lots here and our, uh, our walks so that we could get in this morning. And then this morning when you were drinking coffee, they were back at about uh, 6.30 this morning, again, clearing the way so that we could uh, walk in. So would you just show your appreciation by uh, giving them a hand for that? I'm so thankful. <laughs> Second thing I would say about um, the snow is this. Yesterday, I was bemoaning the fact that today was going to be a snow Sunday and bemoaning that to my wife, who is actually a better theologian than I because she actually believes her theology, because I was bemoaning that Today is an evangelism sermon on a snow Sunday, and she says, so, like, do you trust the sovereignty of God? <laughs> that was a little irritating. <laughs> <laughs> so I trust that the people here are the, exactly the ones who need to be here. Speaking of evangelism, I shared with you before that I had a professor in seminary once who told us that he had the gift of evangelism. He told us that fruit, ripe fruit, often fell off of the tree right at his feet. He told the story about going to a library one day to pick up his daughter, which got there. She wasn't quite ready, so he sat down on a bench right there in the foyer to wait for her. After a few moments, this young man sat down right next to him, looked him in the eye, and said, do you know anything about Jesus? He said that he was able to lead the young man to faith in Christ right there in the library, because, you see, this guy was ready. All, all he needed to do was pray the prayer, sign a card. He was at the doorstep of the kingdom, ready to be led in. Most five-year-olds in Sunday school could have told the guy, just ask Jesus into your heart. And now most of us have never had that kind of thing happen. But let me ask um, you, how would you respond to someone who asked you that question? That's easy. You say, I've had evangelism explosion. I, I grew up Baptist. I know the Romans Road. I've been to crew. I'd pull out the four spiritual laws and take them right to the back of the book. <laughs> Skip the rest. He's ripe. He's ready. Pray the prayer. Say the right words. Notch the belt. Move on. If you have ever had a course on personal evangelism, you would recognize that this person <laughs> is a primetime candidate for conversion, salvation. Last thing that you would do in that conversation is to put up any obstacles. In fact, most of our evangelism training teaches, how, teaches us how to remove obstacles, how to answer objections. I mean, if you're going to be a good evangelist today, you've got to be a good apologist. You've got to answer all of the questions, remove anything that stands in the way of people committing their lives to Jesus. And by all means, don't add to the obstacles, don't add to the confusion, don't add to the clutter. Don't get sidetracked. Stay with the gospel, right? <laughs> and then we read our text this morning, and it might just blow everything that we've ever heard right out of the water. Look at it with me. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following say this. And he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey. A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> do you know anything about Jesus? And about that time, the disciples start humming just as I am in the background, and Jesus said, every, high, every head bowed and every eye closed, and we're ready to go. And that's not what happened. 
And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandment? What? Well, that's law, Jesus. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And the young man said to him, teacher, I'm in good shape. I've kept all those things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven where it really counts. And and then come and, and follow me. What in the world are you doing, Jesus? See, at these words, the man was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. What is going on here? Jesus just had a, just let a primetime candidate walk away. Mark Valentine would have kicked the, Jesus out of crew. This rich man, Luke gives us the additional detail that he was a ruler. Matthew says he was young. This rich, young ruler comes to Jesus, and he wants to be saved, right? He comes up and sits down next to Jesus and and looks him in the eye. Actually, he does better than that. He bows in his presence and says, do you know anything about eternal life? Are you kidding? I am the way and the truth and the life, buddy. You come to the right place, pal. Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's me, by the way, and you will be saved. Read him a few assurance verses. The angels in heaven are rejoicing. Close the deal. You're done. To get people to this point where this guy was in verse 17 is, is the goal of our evangelistic efforts. I mean, we long to hear these kinds of words. I mean, if we can get them to this point, all that's left is to close the deal. I mean, we think of like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. What is to prevent me from being baptized? From, that means from believing in Christ. Why, nothing, pal. Let's, let's go get wet. No obstacles. You're open. You're ready. Let's do it. Stop the chariot. Let's go. We think of Paul and the Philippian jailer who, the, the jailer who comes into the cell, cell where, where Paul and Silas were, fell on his knees, and just, just like this guy falls on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? Do you know anything about Jesus? Are you kidding me? Believe on the Lord Jesus. That's all there is to it. That's what Paul said. Frankly, that's what I would have said. I suppose some of you would have too. But that is not what happens. By the time we get to the end of the conversation in verse 22, this man who came to be saved walks away lost. What is going on? I, I don't get this. Let let, let me tell you something else that that, that might bug you. This guy is exactly the kind of guy most of us would want in our churches. (laughs) What do I mean? Well, this guy was was a real catch. I mean, he was as good as any athlete or celebrity today. This guy was the kind of guy we want. Rich, you bet. We can get him saved and then teach him how to tithe. We can improve our financial situation. He's respectable. I mean, by his own estimation, he's a good guy, probably belongs to the Rotary, gives to Goodwill, and serves at the local soup kitchen. (laughs) And not only that, he's young. 
While most churches today are facing aging congregations, this guy was rich and young. If we could get this one, maybe some other young people, some up-and-comers, you know, maybe even from ASU would come and join us. This could be the happening place. Did you hear so-and-so goes to Alliance? This is the guy we want. What are you doing, Jesus? When I first got out of Bible college many years ago, I was, this will come as a shock to some of you, I was in youth ministry. I had a book on youth ministry that, that actually said this. It said, go after the popular guys and girls at the high school, kind of like this guy. Target them. If you can get them to come, then the losers will come too. Oh, I didn't say it in exactly those words, but that was the point. Anyone can get losers. Go after the popular ones, and then everyone else will come too. That's the way Jesus did it, right? I mean, he went right after the winners of society. He, he skipped the losers, you know, like, I don't know, tax collectors and prostitutes and lepers and pagans and run-of-the-mill sinners. I mean, this guy, he's a winner. This was an opportunity for Jesus to raise his batting average. <laughs> Please, by all means, come to our church. Not only that, he's religious. How do I know that? He's a ruler. That means he's a synagogue ruler. He's already religious. He's already kind of righteous. He just needs a little Jesus. Anybody here want to live forever, say, I do. I do, you're in. Raise your hand, walk the aisle, say the prayer, sign the card, join our group. You'll fit in real well. You're our kind of people. Ever do that? Ever look at people and say, I think they would make a good Christian because they're like us. Really. The hook is already in his mouth, just a little gentle tug, and you can set the hook. He's all but in, Jesus. It's time to reel him in. This is the seeker of all seekers, the hottest prospect of all times. Jesus, what in the world are you doing? Don't you know anything about evangelism? And Jesus flunks Evangelism 101. The fact of the matter is, most of us, if we'd been approached by this rich young ruler, we would have closed the deal. I would have. And as a result, we would have offered a salvation devoid of reality and power, devoid of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. No life. And I have to tell you that I believe that we present this gospel in many churches today. It is presented as something that will enhance your already rich life. Make the gospel attractive. Make it comfortable. Make it a reasonable addition to your already wonderful life. Just throw a little Jesus in and you've got everything that you need. He can be the cherry on your Sunday. Things might be going well. You, you might have a great job earning a rather lucrative salary. You might have a wonderful family and you live in a wonderful neighborhood. You are well, well respected in the community. You're considered a success. The kids, why they play soccer and Little League. New cars are dependable. The Cubs won the World Series. Life is good. <laughs> And you've kept the law, you think, pretty well from your youth. You just needed a little Jesus. And if you added a little Jesus, you don't have any of him. Come to a story today, which many of us know, depicted here by Heinrich Hoffmann's famous painting of the 19th century. I say the words, rich young ruler, and you say, oh, 
Yeah, I, I know that story. I should have stayed in. Can I encourage us to forget what we know, to open our hearts, our minds to what the Holy Spirit may want to communicate to us today? Because I believe, particularly in our American culture, when most of us are richer than this guy was, that the church of Jesus Christ is filled with rich young rulers. People who heard a comfortable gospel, added Jesus, and know nothing of the true gospel and the cost of discipleship. You might just be a rich young ruler yourself. At some point you realize something was missing, you added Jesus to your already wonderful life, Right now, you feel pretty good about yourself, and the possibility is Jesus might have sent you away. The message for us, for you today, might just be one that will change your life for eternity. You, you know, in, uh, some of you uh, may this morning choose to walk away grieving because you have so much to hold on to. You know in your heart of hearts that you think pretty highly of yourself. Jesus is not first place in your life. You are. You and your assets, whatever they are, and you know in your heart of hearts that you will never let them go. Then go on. That's what Jesus said. Others of you I want to pry from your fingers the things that keep you from Christ and that keep you from eternal life. Because it is not by might, it is not by power, it is not by anything that we cling to, anything that we bring that ushers us into the kingdom of God. It is only by His Spirit. Some of you need a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Remember, I suggested that a five-year-old in Sunday school could have answered this guy's question that day. J just ask Jesus into your heart. I'm going to suggest that that's exactly what Jesus does here. Just let me sit on the throne of your heart. But this rich young ruler had something else in his heart. Some of you have something else in your heart that leaves no room for Jesus. I want you to understand something, a very critical principle this morning. Jesus will be all or he will not be at all. Let me break down the text as we're going to make our way through this conversation. We're going to see the request of the rich young ruler and then we're going to see a rather surprising response of Jesus. It wouldn't work in most evangelistic crusades today. And then we're going to close with a response of the rich young ruler, verse 20. Verse 22. You know, you can read verse 23 and following, and Jesus doesn't go after the guy. I want to be clear. I'm, I'm not sure the gospel many pre churches preach is the gospel. You can have Jesus and everything else, too. Some of them even preach that, and you know I harp on it all the time. You can, have the, you can have Jesus, and he'll even make you rich. 
I want you to understand that the true gospel will endure no competitors. Let me say that again. The true gospel will endure no competitors. The true, the true gospel wants everything that you have. Let's start with a request of the rich young ruler, verse 17. I've already covered most of that. Mark tells us that Jesus, his disciples, have, have just left the house. They're, they're, they're likely continuing their journey to Jerusalem. They're on the way. This, this young guy runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees. That's a good posture, isn't it? And says, good teacher, that's a good, good way to start. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is it. This is great stuff. This, I want you to understand, this guy was sincere. He was rich, which means he probably used to people kneeling in his presence or at least deferring to him. And, and yet here he humbles himself and he kneels at Jesus' feet. There's a sense of urgency here in the Greek. There's even a sense of desperation. The, the, the guy actually looks a lot like that guy back in Mark chapter 1. Remember him? He was a leper. He too came running up to Jesus, bowing at his feet. He didn't care what anyone thought. He had a need that he thought Jesus could meet, and, and Jesus met the need. Same kind of thing happens here. Well, sort of. The, the, uh, it's significant for this well-to-do member of society to approach Jesus in this particular way. The rest of the religious world, they turned on Jesus. The Pharisees, they are trying to trap him, to expose him, to destroy him. This young man, synagogue ruler, he had much to lose by coming to Jesus publicly this way. He runs up, falls on his knees, and by his very question publicly acknowledges, I've got a need. Everyone thought this guy had everything he needed. He didn't. And somehow he knew that. So he's ready. Say these words. Pray this prayer you're in. Notice he asks about eternal life. Now, most of us think of eternal life as something that we get after we die, which is kind of weird. <laughs> um, there, there, there's a sense in which that's true if you're only thinking of quantity of life. But for the Jewish mind, and in fact the Scriptures speak of eternal life as a quality of life, the quality of being in relationship with God, of being alive to Him and being alive to spiritual things, of realizing, listen, this is important, of realizing that there is more to life than what I can amass, what I can own, what I can acquire, and what I can attain. And not only that, it is a quality of life that is available right now. We don't have to wait. You don't have to wait till after you die to get it. Why is that important? This man runs up to Jesus, rich, young ruler. This one who seems to have everything going for him. And he knows that something's missing. I've got my life all together. But there's a certain emptiness to it. There's something that all my success, all my riches, all my power, notoriety, popularity, all my prominence and influence will not fill. There's a, there's a hole. I am dead to God. What is it, Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life right now? Despite all of my efforts, been pretty good. Something's wrong. There's, there's no fullness of life. I need life. So tell me, Jesus, what, I, what do I need to do? Whatever it is, I'll do it. Which, again, is perhaps exactly how some of you feel right now. All of my life, you say, I've walked the straight and narrow. I've actually kind of been a good kid. I've, I've done th things right from my youth, genuinely. I mean, if, if this was your son or daughter... You'd be proud of this guy, and maybe you think they'd be proud of you. 
You grew up in church, you kept the rules, you, you did the Sunday school thing, you did the sword drills, learned the Bible verses, you know the stories, got confirmed or baptized, you were an altar boy, you went to confession, you did the discipleship thing, you joined Awana, did summer camps and quiz teams, you were a really good kid. You, you read the Bible, you even remember to pray. Well, sometimes, maybe because you're desperately trying to fill a hole, the, the emptiness, by doing things, doing right things. Things You see, we've got our list too, just like this guy has. You, you try to live a moral life. You keep the Ten Commandments. You're successful most of the time. You've never murdered anyone. <laughs> you, you've never committed adultery. You've never s- stolen anything or, or, or told, you never told any really bad lies. And yet, if you're honest this morning, you'd say there's no peace, there's no joy, there's no hope. And more than once, more than once, if you were honest, you'd say, I've thought about bagging this whole Christianity thing. It's not working. Now you continue to try, hoping desperately that sometimes something that you do is going to work. Tell me what it is, Jesus. And you've asked him over and over again, tell me what to do, I'll do it, what's missing? I want you to think about this just for a moment. This man came asking the right person for the right thing. But what is also significant is the question he asked, what shall I do? You see, this man stands in stunning contrast to the children who were coming to Jesus last week. That's the reason that Mark puts these stories side by side. Children, Jesus said, serve as perfect pictures of the way people come into the kingdom. Simple, dependent, humble, bringing nothing. This man was convinced there was something he needed to do in order to get in. He he certainly didn't want to come empty-handed. I've done an awful lot. I can bring that to you, but there's something missing. What else do I need to bring? What else do I need to do? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Sincere question. It was actually a genuine question. He wanted it. Sign him up. Lead him in the sinner's prayer. It brings us to Jesus' response versus startling response in verses 18 to 21. Counters with a rather puzzling question. Why, why do you call me good? No one is good, but God alone. What, what? This has caused tons of problems this century. Some suggesting that Jesus here says, I'm not good, I'm not God. That's, that is not it at all. Rather, most agree that Jesus is trying to get this man to take his focus off of himself and his own self-righteousness and on God and his perfect righteousness, his standards. Listen, Jesus says, there is only one good, uh, only one good, and that's God. It's not you. You, you want to talk about doing good? There's only one. Be that good, he's saying. There's only one good, and it's not you, Harry. Go away and be good, then come back. I'll rewrite the verse. There's two good, you and Harry. Jesus says, you want to know what good thing you need to do? You want to come alive to God? Basically, what he sa- I think Jesus says is this. Go do more of what you're doing that isn't working. You're thinking about this all wrong. Go keep the law. Keep the commandments. Do that. Has that been working for you? Has it been working for you, trying to be good? 
At first glance, it may be confusing. Wait a minute, whatever happened to salvation by grace through faith? Whatever happened to the four spiritual laws? Whatever happened to the bridge diagram? Whatever happened to asking Jesus into your heart? Is Jesus here teaching that salvation could be worked for and earned through the law? That a person could be justified, that is declared righteous by keeping the commandments? Of Of course not. He understands that this man, like many of us, have a problem. And it was this, his understanding of righteousness and how you got it is all messed up. This man saw righteousness as something he could do for himself. There's something he could do that would make himself pleasing to God, that, that would earn grace, that would make himself okay before God. He failed to understand that no matter how good he was, no matter how, um, uh, how many church rules he obeyed, synagogue rules he obeyed, his heart was still black, and he needed a new heart. It wasn't a matter of what he could do for God. He could never do enough. It was a matter of what God could do for him. He didn't get that. He needed to understand that he was spiritually dead. Nothing he could do would earn him grace. He needed to stop looking on the outside and start looking within and and maybe figure out that his heart was desperately and deceitfully wicked. He needed a new heart. What is it, Jesus? What do I need to do? I need to do the commandments? Okay, which, which ones? Just tell me. I'll do them. This man had no concept of his own sinfulness, his own total inability to make himself righteous before God. He was a rule keeper. Give me some more rules. I desperately want life. Keep doing the same thing that I'm doing. Is that working for you? This church thing, is that working for you? Jesus says, you want some rules? Okay, fine. Let's list some. Right out of Exodus 20, 10 commandments, specifically 6, 7, 8, 9, and 5 in that order. Don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor mom and dad. And and then he throws in one for good measure. Don't defraud. Some suggest the defrauding is the action of coveting. Or perhaps most rich people got rich by defrauding. So threw that in for good measure. There you go. Go keep the law. What, what is Jesus doing? He is using the law for its intended purpose. There are three primary purposes of the law to expose your sin. He said, the law says, don't do this, and you do it anyway, all of you, all of them. You, they are to expose your sin, to break you, and to drive you to Christ. The law was never intended to make people righteous. Why? Because there's something wrong with the law? No. The author of Hebrews says that the problem is not with the law. The problem is with human flesh. It's weak. It can never, we can never keep it perfectly. So, so the purpose of the law is to expose the weakness inherent in every one of us, sin, such that we could never do, that's the point, we could never do what we need to do in order to earn salvation. Even if you go through a list. We are guilty before God. We can't keep his standard of righteousness. And as a result, the law drives us to Christ as our only hope. This is what Jesus is trying to do here, using the law to break this man in his pride, his vain self-attempts to justify himself. The man's response, all these things I've kept from my youth, 
All my life, I have kept these laws. What am I still lacking? This man, like pretty much everyone else, had a pharisaical, external understanding of the law. He had made it a matter of external compliance. He kept a list in his mind, and as Jesus listed the laws, he checked them off. Don't murder anyone. Check. Uh, never done that. Don't commit adultery. Check. Never done that. Don't steal or bear false witness. Check. Uh, check. Never done those either. Honor your parents. Okay, not bad. Jesus, I passed the test. What's still lacking? Come on, I, I know the written rules. I've, I've got them all. What's the secret? What insight? What would, you, what would you have me do? You see, there was this prevailing thought that there was something special beyond the law. The law was not giving, you see, the inner peace that they were looking for. Even if they imagined themselves keeping it, peace was still absent. There must be something else. There was something else. They just didn't realize it was something they could not do. Now, Jesus, at this point, could have taken this guy back to Matthew chapter 5. Remember that first sermon that he preached? Uh, There he was pegging this external system, the Pharisees, the guys who had reduced the law to an external code of compliance. They were saying, I've never done any of these things. Pretty good. And Jesus took the law and drove it home to the heart where it always belonged. You've heard it said, don't commit murder, that's good. But let me take it to the heart where it belongs. I say don't even hate someone because it is the attitude of hatred that produces murder. If you you, you hate somebody, guilty. If you're angry with someone, guilty. Call someone a fool, never done that, but I call them an idiot, guilty. Suddenly, the Pharisees and you and me are not looking so good. Heard it said, don't commit adultery. Never done that either. (laughs) Try this on for size. Adultery begins with lust. He drives it home to the heart where it belongs. Any man who has ever looked at a woman with lust has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Still feeling good about yourselves? Jesus could have done that with this guy. Make no mistake about it. This man had not kept the law, any of them, and neither of you, even the Sunday school laws that we make up. But this time, Jesus took a different approach. Notice Mark says, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Despite this man's false self-image, despite his vain attempts at self-justification, Jesus loved him just like he loves you in the midst of your misery. Of course, this man had not kept the commandments, but in love, Jesus went right, goes right to the heart of the matter. He says, okay, fine. You're feeling pretty good about your external compliance. Fine. You've kept the law? Okay. Not all of them. There's something you're missing. Go. Sell all your possessions. Give everything you have to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven where it really matters. Then come and follow me. And that's the emphasis in that verse, following Jesus. This young man had no idea what true righteousness was all about. 
He had no idea that true righteousness is not found in doing certain things and keeping a list and checking it twice. True righteousness, Jesus said, comes in relationship. It comes in giving everything up to follow him. The man who found the pearl of great price sold everything in order to acquire the pearl. The man who, who, who found the treasure in the f- field with great joy sold everything that he had to acquire the field. The point is Jesus is worth everything that you've got, and if you're not willing to give it all up for him, the kingdom is not for you. You're kind of stretching it here just a little bit. Are you telling me, I mean, you just said earlier that we're richer than like everybody on the planet. You, you think that God wants me, to, Jesus wants me to sell everything that I have? Maybe. If it's more important to you than he is. little overkill. I suspect, again, that's why some of you will walk away today. You will say, well, I've given a lot to Jesus, and that's all he gets. He cannot have it all. And, 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 you, and, and you will may not physically walk away. You'll walk out those doors, and you'll come back next week just thinking, I went over the edge a little bit today. You think you're fine. You th- think that what I'm asking, actually what Jesus is asking is just too much. And you've walked away. Jesus pierced right to the soul of this rich young ruler. He knew this man valued his possessions, his wealth more than anything. Call it a violation of the first commandment of having other gods before God, namely his possessions. Call it a violation of the tenth commandment of coveting things. Call it not loving your neighbor as yourself, not loving the poor. Call it whatever you want. The issue is this. When Jesus calls a man to follow him, he, that man or woman must be willing to give up everything for Jesus. Whatever it is that you harbor in your heart right now that says Jesus can have everything but not that. That's what he wants. Because there is to be no adding Jesus to the mix. There is to be no including Jesus in your already wonderful life. You do not have a wonderful life if you do not have Jesus. You are terribly deceived. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor. You must come to the end of yourself and realize that nothing else will do. You willingly give it all up for him because he is your only hope. And this man, point three, walked away saddened. The word is actually shocked. What? Are you, just like some of you were sitting, what? You're asking too much. Grieving. Because he owned much property. Matthew says he had many possessions. Brings us to our conclusion. The concern that I have for the church of Jesus Christ today, particularly in this country, is that many, and maybe even some of you, came and asked, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And someone, well-meaning, told you, well, just throw a little Jesus in. You don't really have to change anything. You can keep everything kind of just the way it is. After all, you've got a rather wonderful life. 
Sure, maybe you've got a few sins that need to go, some failures. After all, that's what Jesus came for. And so you walked an aisle and you prayed a prayer and you signed a card. Anybody here want to live forever? You said, I do. And despite everything you did, there's still an emptiness inside, a sense of gnawing that you've never quite been able to figure out. I want to say to you this morning that it is possible that Jesus sent you away. He wouldn't do it. He just did. Because you came with fists clenched. Because you came saying, there, there, there are things that I will never give up to Jesus. You came without a sense of your own brokenness and depravity, without an understanding of your utter depravity and your terrible black heart of sin. Jesus, I want to tell you once at all, he will accept nothing less. Sell everything that you have, everything that you are holding on to. You get rid of it. You divest yourself of it. Then come and follow Jesus. Nothing less will do. So that sounds an awful lot like works. It isn't works. It's giving up anything that you bring to the table that thinks that you can buy it or that you can earn it. Blessed, you see, are those who come broken, mourning, hungry, thirsty, empty-handed, realizing they have nothing, they are nothing, they are worth nothing. They have nothing to offer who realize that Jesus is their only hope. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gave everything for you, and now he wants everything you've got. And perhaps he's calling you right now to give it all up, once and for all, to him. Let's stand for prayer. Father, this is a familiar story and one I suppose that most of us have heard before or read before or even studied before and and yet it is shocking as it was to this man to see that Jesus expected one that would become his follower to give up everything. Isn't isn't what we do. It's it's because Becoming like little children and depending totally and completely on Jesus and, and being willing to forget, forego everything that this world has to offer and the, the wealth of this country, indeed the wealth of the church, is blinded eyes to what you, to your call, to what you expect of followers. Father, right now, by your Spirit, I pray you would do all what you can do, and you would expose those secret corners of our heart that we think nobody else knows about, those secret corners, give them up to you. Take all of me, all of me, or you will take none of me. In Jesus' name, amen.